You know, life can be pretty complicated. Some of you may have come in here with things that in your life that seem to be careening out of control, uh, relationships or circumstances that uh, you wish you could completely organize and put them the way you'd like them to be so that everything would be nice and neat and tidy. That's not generally how life works, and I'm a bit of a control freak, and so I like to control the circumstances as best I can, and maybe you're wired similarly. It can be frustrating, and, and we can actually go through a lot of mental anguish when we're not able to control the circumstances around us. Mark Twain said, I am an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. See, for a lot of us, the wrestling is in our minds, in our spirits, in our hearts, and we add burden to ourselves because of the way we wrestle with these things. Uh, the humorist of the 20th century, Irma Bombeck, said, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. We can get so obsessed with trying to deal with our circumstances and the people around us that, that it really adds to the weight rather than takes away the weight of the things we're dealing with in our lives. Sometimes I wish I could control everybody and everything and life would just be so much better. What do we do when we really don't control these things? Today we're gonna to talk about letting God be God. If you wanna go in your Bibles or go to a Bible app on your mobile device, join me in 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're gonna look at an incident in 1 Samuel 24 and a different incident, maybe separated by months, maybe by a couple years, a different incident in 1 Samuel 26. They're very similar. David, who lived a 1,000 years before Jesus walked on planet Earth, is on the run from King Saul. David has been anointed to be the next king. He has defeated Goliath. He's been the general of Saul's armies. He's personally encouraged and blessed Saul through playing of the harp and the music that ministered to Saul's heart. All those things seem like that was the right path to heading toward being the king as God had anointed him. But Saul had gotten jealous, and Saul tries to kill David, and David has to go on the run, and we, in our study of the life of David, we come to Sermon 5 in this study that'll take us through the summer, and we come to this occasion or two occasions when David has an opportunity to kill King Saul and he spares his life. In the years that David is on the run, he's on the run from Saul for about a decade. In those years, you can imagine how many times David wished he could control all the circumstances, all the conversations, all the relationships that seem to be spinning out of control. Maybe you feel that way, and there are times you try to be God in circumstances and situations where you just can't be God. Some people think that letting God be God means we just passively give up and take some fatalistic approach. I want us to understand as we look at these two stories in 1 Samuel 24 and 26 that letting God be God is not about passively giving up and drifting through life. It's about actively engaging with him and trusting in him. All that energy, uh, you aim it toward engaging with God and trusting him with the things that are outside of your control. Now these two chapters tell two different stories. In 1 Samuel 24, we have the story of Saul going in, knowing that David is somewhere near the caves in Engedi, in hiding. He goes there to hunt down Saul with 3,000 of his top troops. And uh, Saul needs to go into the bathroom, he goes in, and David and his men are hiding in there, and they have an opportunity to kill Saul, but David spares his life. On another occasion, uh, Saul chases David to the wilderness of Ziph, and 
He has an opportunity again to destroy Saul and kill him while he's sleeping, and David doesn't do that. He is able to sneak in and take the jug of water that was for uh, uh, Saul's sustenance that's sitting next to him while he's sleeping at night, and he takes his spear, which is his security that's in the ground next to him, and he comes away and has both of those items. Now, in each of these incidents, David could have carried out his revenge on Saul. He's even encouraged to do that. But he lets God be God. He doesn't try to control all the circumstances, all the relationships, all the people involved. Now, uh, we'll be looking at specific portions of these two chapters in a moment, but I came across a very simple retelling of both stories done by a children's Sunday school curriculum uh, from Regular Baptist Press, and they've given us permission to use this very simple kind of line-drawing art that just gives you a sense of these two incidents. Actually, they kind of are reading a paraphrased version of chapter 24 and 26, and it's a very simple way to communicate uh, the depth of these two stories. Watch this video. David spares Saul twice from 1 Samuel 24 and 26. King Saul had been chasing David throughout the land of Israel. When Saul heard David was hiding in the wilderness called En Gedi, he took 3,000 men and went there. One day, Saul went inside a cave, not knowing that David and his men were hiding in the back of the same cave. This is it, David's men whispered to him. This is the day God meant when he said he would deliver your enemies into your hands. David sneaked over to where Saul was and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Immediately, he felt guilty. Why did I do that, David said to his men. God forbid that I do this to the king, to the Lord's anointed. David held back his men, not allowing them to attack Saul as they watched the king leave the cave. David followed Saul out of the cave and called, My Lord the King. Saul turned and saw David bowing. Why do you listen to people who say, I want to harm you? David asked. Today God put you into my hands and some urged me to kill you, but I said, I will not lay a hand on the king because he is the Lord's anointed. See the corner of your robe in my hand? I could have killed you. I'm not against you, yet you hunt me to take my life. I will not raise my hand against you. Is that your voice, David? Saul began to weep. You are a better man than I am. You have been good to me, but I have done evil to you. May God reward you with good for the way you have treated me today. I know you will be king someday. Promise me that you won't kill my family. So David promised, and Saul went home. But David continued to hide in the wilderness. One day some people told Saul, Did you know that David is hiding in the wilderness of Ziph? Saul set out again to find David. In the evening, he set up camp for the night. When David heard that Saul had come to the wilderness, he sent spies to confirm Saul's arrival. Arriving at Saul's camp, David could see Saul and Abner, his general, sleeping. They were safely encircled by the army. Who will come with me into Saul's camp? David whispered to his soldiers. I will go with you, replied Abishai. David and Abishai quietly sneaked into Saul's camp. The soldiers who should have been protecting the king were sleeping. In the center of camp, they found Saul fast asleep with his spear stuck in the ground beside him. God has given you your enemy's life, Abishai told David. Let me kill Saul with his own spear. Don't touch him, David responded. No one can harm the Lord's anointed and be sinless. God controls when Saul will die. I refuse to harm him. Grab his spear and water jug and let's go. 
God had kept everyone asleep. Once David was safely on the opposite hilltop, he shouted across to the army and to Abner, the general. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? David called. Abner replied, Who are you to call to the king? Aren't you supposed to be guarding King Saul? David called again. You're not doing a good job. Someone sneaked into the camp. Look what I have, the water jug and spear that were beside the king himself. Saul had recognized David's voice and called, Is that you, David? It is, David replied. Why are you chasing me again? What have I done? If God has told you to pursue me, then I gladly forfeit my life. But if men have told you to hunt me down, then may God curse them. I have been driven from my rightful place because the king of Israel hunts me like a man hunting a bird. Then Saul said, I have sinned against you, David. I promise not to chase you anymore because you considered my life to be valuable. Send a young man to claim your spear, David answered. I had the opportunity to kill you, but I chose not to. Just as I valued your life today, so may God value my life in my time of trouble. Then Saul blessed David. You will do great things and will succeed in them. So David and Saul went their separate ways. I think from these two stories that are found here in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, there are five things that emerge that help us cultivate a heart that lets God be God, that engages with God and trusts in him. It's not a fatalistic, uh, giving up kind of approach, but let me share these five things with you. If you wanna let God be God, first of all, you've gotta be clear about your reality. Be clear about your reality. Saul had a certain narrative that he had created and it appears his men and others had given him that David was a threat, David was gonna to try to destroy him, David was out to get him, that was not true. David maintains clarity about his reality. Something I say to my kids quite frequently is, uh, face reality and adjust your attitude. Now they say it back to me every now and then uh, to remind me of how important that is. Look at what is said in chapter 24 and verse 14 by David when he's holding that piece of Saul's robe and he says, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, Saul? A dead dog, a flea, what am I? Why are you chasing me? This doesn't make any sense. Then the, the second incident in chapter 26, verse 18. Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? David is looking at this through the eyes of what is actually true and Saul has this conflated narrative about David. Be clear about your reality. Focus on what you know when your impulse is to make up what you believe. We spend a lot of time sometimes making up things to believe so we can justify our attitude towards someone, so we can justify our actions, our behaviors. We have to be very careful that we don't conflate and make up stories and create narratives online as we interact with people and, and believe the worst of people and get caught up in conspiracies. Jeannie Duck, the author who writes about leadership says, in the absence of information, people will connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. This happens in churches, it happens in workplaces, it happens within families. We know this and we know this, so then we fill in all this. And we usually fill that in so we become the hero and the other person is the bad guy. 
We fill it in so we can justify our attitude and our, our, our actions. But David is clear about what reality is, and he confronts Paul twice with the reality of what's taking place. Saul has bought into a narrative that is now justifying his actions against David. Be clear about your reality. Secondly, be patient. Be patient in your journey. This is a tough one for me. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit as we walk with Jesus. We're going to live in love like Jesus, and the Spirit transforms us from the inside out. Galatians 5 says, patience will come out of our lives. This is, this is a tough one for me. This is about waiting on God's timing. David is on the run for king, from King Saul. Knowing he's appointed to replace Saul, he's on the run for about a decade, maybe up to a dozen years. He's got to be patient often with the circumstances and people with Saul He's waiting on God's timing. Look at chapter 24. We read, then David, in verse four, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Remember, as men say, this is your chance. They're inside the cave in this first incident. They're hiding. This is a big cave system in En Gedi, and they're hiding, and um, Saul is trying to track down David, and he says to him, just a minute, and he goes into the cave to go to the bathroom. In this very vulnerable moment, literally with Saul's pants down, David's men say, here's your chance, kill him. You'll be the king, we'll be done with this, seize the day. And so David begins to buy into this. Now some people say, why is, the, why is his conscience bothered for just cutting off a corner of the robe? See, more than likely what was gonna happen is he'd cut off a corner of the robe and then he'd cut off Saul's head and his conscience gets him between the first act and the second act. Why was he taking the corner of the robe? So that once he'd cut off his head and someone said, who is it who killed the king? Who's the mighty warrior? He'd hold up a piece of the robe and say, it was me, David. And maybe that would be his ticket and his path to being king, but instead his conscience bothers him and he determines that he should not play God in this situation and that the, the Lord's anointed as Saul and the scriptures are clear that they were not to attack their leaders. And so he exercises patience here. Be patient in your journey. Step back and wait when your impulse is to rush in and act. Now there are times in David's life he's not patient We'll see that as we go. The times when he rushes in and acts, when he tries to be God rather than let God be God, he gets himself into the most trouble, causes the most heartache, causes the most pain, causes the most disappointment. It's hard to step back and wait when your impulse is to rush in and act, even when others are encouraging you to do that. Even Abishai, who is David's nephew, in the second incident, he sneaks toward the camp of Saul with David. They get the spear and the jug, and he says, here's your chance, kill him. Be patient in your journey. Warren Wiersbe said, you and I cannot change or control the world around us, but we can change and control the world within us. Sometimes there are variables that just aren't under our control. There are things being said, things being done. You know of those incidents in your family, your workplace, in your life. You can't control all those things, but we can have self-control. We can ask the Spirit of God to change our attitude, to bring about peace and contentment. Last week, Pastor Troy did a great job from Psalm 131, that Psalm of David, about where contentment, satisfaction comes from in our relationship with the Lord. I don't know about you, but I am not a very patient person. I tend to rush in and act 
when I should wait on God and let God be God. Sometimes it's benign things, sometimes it's really serious things that causes a lot of damage. For over a year now, I've been talking to a local uh, car salesman who has helped me find cars in the past, and I said, you know, one of my cars is gonna need replaced, not right away, but I'd like to replace it before it really starts to fall apart, needs a lot of repairs, and maybe its trade-in value is still good, or resale value, and so over a year ago, I said to him, I'm looking for this kind of car, maybe four or five years old, in this price range, and kind of gave him the criteria he was looking for, and over the course of the year, he's contacted me, maybe once uh, every month or so, or once every other month, and said, hey, a car was traded in, because he knows when cars get traded in, and uh, before they're completely put out to the public, I could have a first shot at buying these. It's the same price anybody else would buy them for, but maybe I'd be able to come across something that's a special car that comes through, that meets my criteria. And uh, he's been looking, and I've passed up a few, and I missed a couple opportunities, and on Tuesday of this week, he called me and he said, hey, I've got a car for you. It, it's, in, it's in your price range. It's, though not just four or five years old, it's 12 years old. I said, I don't want a 12-year-old car. That's the only car I'm replacing, and it's just going to be buying someone else's problems. And he said, but this car is a Lexus. I said, a Lexus? I've never owned a Lexus. That's interesting. But still, I don't want a Lexus with a lot of problems and complicated. He said, it's a convertible. Oh, that's interesting. He says, it's a hard top, and he says, it's 12 years old, and it has 3,719 miles. He said, Sean, I'm telling you, there's not a scratch on this. Somebody's going to get it right away. You might want to come down and look at it tomorrow. So I said, okay, this isn't the kind of car. This isn't the age. It's in the price range. The mileage is much better than I expected. I even questioned that, and they proved that it's the true original miles. So I went down there, an appointment got canceled, and I was able to go down there, and, and uh, I test drove it. So when I was done test driving, it had no longer had 3,719 miles. It had 3,728 miles. I added a whole bunch to it. Um, and uh, I looked at There wasn't like a ding where someone opened the door next to this car. The guy had driven it like one time a week to go to a corner market for 12 years and kept it in the garage. I mean, there wasn't a scratch on the outside. It had uh, leather seats that looked like a baseball glove. I mean, just beautiful, everything. There wasn't a spot on the carpeting. There, wasn't, there was nothing wrong with this car. And he told me the price, and then I said, yeah, but what do you give me in the trade-in? And he gave me much more than I expected on the trade-in value of the car I was, I was trying to get rid of. So I called Leslie and I said, this deal is so good. I'm going to get this. And people can question a pastor with a Lexus with a hard top convertible. They can do that all they want. <laughs> I'll tell the story of how cheap it was and what a great deal it was. And so I told her, they gave me more in the trade-in. And I thought, so I'm going to get this car if you're good. She said, all right. And so you know how it goes in buying a car. It seems the older I get, the longer it takes. They add more papers and more papers. And you're signing away, you know, do you acknowledge that this was actually manufactured on planet Earth and so, not some other planet? Initial here, you know. You're going through, and it, it takes like an hour and a half just for them to produce the papers and sign everything and go through it all. And so he'd go away for a few minutes to get some papers, and, and uh, I decided to open my notebook, and I was just working on the sermon today. And we got down to the point I was ready to write the name of the dealership on the check, and I was expecting him to come back with the keys, and he came back, and he goes, we got a problem. I said, we got a problem. After three hours here, we got a problem. And he said, yeah, it turns out the manager knows that this thing is already sold. It was basically sold when it came in the door. And 
it wasn't marked in the file, and so they say, I can't sell it to you. I mean, I was just, I've been, you know, over a year looking for a replacement. This was this car that was so perfect. I've never had a car like this fall into my lap so beautifully, and, you know, I was pretty disappointed, and he said, you know, and he's the dealer, the uh, salesman is a believer, a strong believer, an elder in his church, and he said, uh, he said, so what have you been working on while we've been doing this? He said, my sermon for this week. He said, what, what are you working on in terms of the message? I said, I'm working on point two, be patient in your journey. <laughs> Letting God be God with the timing of everything. <laughs> and he said, well, you're handling this pretty well. I said, how can I not when God's used this? Just, he's just taken this time away from my day to purely make this point with me about being patient. And again, that's something pretty benign, a car, and he's gonna be looking in the right kind of car will cross my path. It probably won't have 3,728 miles on it. But, but we have to learn in life that when we try to rush in and play God, we really mess things up. Something I've learned in my life is God is a much better God than I am. We have to come to that point where we learn that. Part of it is being patient in our journey. Thirdly, not only be clear about your reality, be patient in your journey, but be wise in your choices. Be wise in your choices. Even when others are saying something else or something looks so obvious, there could be no other way. So we read in chapter 24, Saul's in the cave. He's doing his business. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Later, he even says to Saul, a couple of verses later, David, when he's telling Saul, I had a chance to kill you, and I did, he says, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? See, David's own voices are saying to him, this is obviously God, Saul's your enemy, and and David says, he's not my enemy. He's the anointed of the Lord. He's God's man for this time. I've got to show respect for him. Saul, however, had been buying the, the feed that had come from people who had other motives and reasons why they wanted David out of the way, and they'd helped conflate the, this, this story. And David's trying to cut through this and know what wisdom is. You've got to be wise in your choices if you're going to let God be God. Listen to what God says when your impulse is to latch on to what others think. How do you know what God says? We'll start with opening God's word, the Bible. Get his perspective on life. You're gonna hear a lot of voices in the world, a lot of political pundits and philosophers and people telling you all kinds of things and, and from all avenues of culture today, we're hearing all kinds of messages that seem to cross the voice of God. We've gotta to listen to what God says and care about what he thinks over what others are saying and what they think. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. In the Hebrew, this, this phrase, there is a way that seems to be right, is the idea that it's obvious to everyone and they're all pushing in that direction. Today we have all kinds of things that are saying, this is okay, this is your truth, this is your reality, live however you wanna live, and then you'll find great joy. And we live in a world full of anxiety and depression and people being overwhelmed. We need to get back to listening to what God says and making choices based on what God says in his word. 
not what people are saying to us or what we might think. And that's hard to navigate, but you, you start with, what does God say should be my response? What does God say should be the way in which I act toward Saul? And David is really clear on that. Be wise in your choices. Fourthly, and this is probably the hardest one and the one that has the greatest arc, if you will, in the story of David and Saul in these two chapters, is to be merciful in your responses. Be clear about your reality, be patient in your journey, be wise in your choices, and be merciful in your responses. This is really hard. There are times I wanna play God and I want to exact vengeance or revenge or a grudge on others who've hurt me or hurt someone I love. I wanna get them back for what they did, for what they said. I wanna say something and this happens a lot, by the way. I think we, we show very little mercy in the area of social media and our digital communication. It's easy to, without seeing someone's face, to allow revenge and vengeance and harsh comments to take place. Be merciful in your responses. Look at chapter 24, verse eight. Then David went out of the cave. He's got that little piece of, Saul's robe in his hand in that first incident of chapter 24, and called out to Saul, my lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He's humble before the king of Israel. He's the Lord's anointed, and David shows him respect. It's, can you imagine? He's showing respect to a man who's caused him to run into hiding, to hide in caves and crevices. Uh, a man who says that David is evil and trying to destroy him. He said to Saul, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. He shows him mercy because that's the right thing to do. Saul knows it. He sees mercy the second time in chapter 26 when David has the jug and the spear and Saul wakes up. David calls out to him and we read in 26, 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. By the way, this is in chapter 26, the second incident. And there's no record of Saul trying to pursue him that way again. David still isn't welcome back in Israel. This is the last time Saul and David interact in either of their lives. Saul says to him, you, you considered my life precious. You showed me mercy. So when we extend mercy to others, God will use it to shape them. When we exact revenge, it continues a cycle of bitterness and hate and spite. We are to be the people of mercy. Be merciful in your responses if you're gonna let God be God. Reach out with kindness when your impulse is to lash out in revenge. When no one else would blame you, no human being would say, Oh, he was so wrong. No, that was the right thing. Look what that person had done to him. Look what that person had done to her. Oh, she did the right thing in giving them revenge and treating them badly because they had mistreated her or him. You say, well, how are we gonna do that? How, how can I show mercy to my ex? How can I show mercy to that business partner, that coworker, those people who've hurt me and harmed me? The, the comments they made online, how can I respond with mercy? Because the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe has shown you mercy in Jesus. We're all sinners before a holy God. We deserve 
punishment and eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But the scriptures say God loved us so much that in his love he showed us mercy. Mercy is you don't give someone what they deserve. We deserve an eternity without God. And in Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, we receive forgiveness and grace from God. And in his mercy, he removes that punishment, that penalty. It was taken in Jesus on the cross. And then we are to turn and channel the love and mercy God has shown us to others to treat them how they should be treated, not the way they treated us. Maybe you haven't come to faith yet in Jesus. Can I encourage you to do that? I'd love to continue a conversation with you in the lobby. I'll be there after the service. We have care and prayer team members who come down to pray with you about any need. After the service, you can come down and talk to them. Ask them, how do I know the mercy of God? How do I know that I have that mercy Sean talked about? If you're joining us online or you're in the room and maybe you say, I gotta, I gotta communicate this right now to someone, then you can just text the name Jesus to the number 58568. Text the name Jesus. Just that is the body of the message to 58568. And we'll connect with you. Make sure you know the mercy that God offers you through Christ. Then when you know that mercy, then he and his spirit will give you the capacity and the ability to extend that mercy, that kindness to people who seemingly don't deserve it. Reach out with kindness when your impulse is to lash out in revenge. Be merciful. This, again, this is probably the toughest. At the core of letting God be God is extending the mercy of God to people who don't deserve it. Just like God extended mercy to us. Fifth and finally, if you're gonna let God be God, be faithful in your walk. Be faithful in your walk. That means you keep leaning into God. You take the next right step of faith. Some people say to me, okay, pastor, what should I do? And we talk about it and they say, yeah, this is my next right step. And I say, great. And they'll say, but what do I do three months from now? What do I do three years from now? I don't know. Well, pastor, you're supposed to know. I don't know. But you already have told me what your next right step is. Take that step. And then God will show you the next right step. And then you take the next right step. That's what David does throughout his life. And when he does that, and he is being faithful in his walk with God, and he takes the next right step, it blesses others and brings peace into his life. When he tries to rush on, when he tries to be God, when he tries to press things further than he should, that's when he creates chaos in the lives of those around him. And he brings this, this disquieted spirit into his own inner being. Be faithful in your walk. I like how both these chapters conclude. They're very simple, pretty simple. Chapter 24, the first incident where he cuts off the corner of the robe while Saul's going to the bathroom, he concludes, that, that whole passage concludes in verse 22 of chapter 24. So David gave his oath to Saul, I won't, I won't kill any of your relatives after you're gone. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now that word stronghold in Hebrew is the word masada. Some of you may be familiar with Masada. Those of you who have been to Israel with us, we've been on top of Masada. We'll be there in February 2024 on our Israel trip. Let me give you a picture of Masada. Now, it's much more formal now because the Romans made it a fortress. It became an escape palace for King Herod. It's in the middle of the desert of the Dead Sea. Notice how flourishing the area is. <laughs> 
But he goes up to this because now this is a different kind of place. If Saul tries to get him again, he'll be up high and be able to protect himself. And you can even see the palace that Herod built into the rock there, some of the, the evidence of that there in the, the picture. But this is where he's going from at the end of chapter 24. But I'm going to show you where he, where he was when Saul chased him and Saul went in the cave. He was in En Gedi. Now, this again is a picture of the desert around the, the Dead Sea. You can see the Dead Sea is the, the first layer of gray above the, the rock there. It's more gray than blue. That's the Dead Sea in the distance. And that little ravine comes from there and it, it dead ends where these green shrubs end. That is the lush, beautiful En Gedi that the psalmist writes about. Doesn't that look beautiful? But if you hike back up in there, we won't be able to hike back up in there when we're there in February of 2024, but we'll be able to stop and see the greenery and say, wow, look at this massive desert. And there's this little place called En Gedi, this beautiful spot. And this is what it looks like when you get back in there. This is some of what it looks like. It's a beautiful little place. But there are caves in there. That's where he's hiding. So he's going to go from the crevices in the ground in hiding from Saul. His next step, what do I do? I got to protect these people. I got to go to Masada. He takes the next right step takes the next right step. Notice at the end of chapter 26, the final verse. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. David took the next right step. We need to take the next right step in being faithful to our God. Max Lucado says, faith is not the belief that God will do what you want. It is the belief that God will do what is best. So what do we do while we're trying to sort out what we want from what God says is best? We take the next right step. We're faithful in our walk. If you want to let God be God, be clear about your reality. Be patient in your journey. Be wise in your choices. Be merciful in your responses. Be faithful in your walk. Why? What do you, what do you, what's, what, if those five things are being cultivated in your life, what are, the, what are the ways you're going to do that? Number one, to cultivate those things in your life, walk with God daily. Open God's word and pray. When, when life is careening out of control and we want to control it, we tend to back off of God and his word. We need to spend time with the Lord, leaning into him. Walk with God daily. Secondly, be kind to others no matter what. If you want to cultivate a spirit of being clear, being patient, being wise, being merciful, being faithful, be kind to others no matter what. That's at the core of this. David was kind to Saul on both occasions considered his life precious, as Saul himself said. Number three, take the next right step. Take the next right step. Maybe the Spirit is whispering to you what that next right step is. Maybe for some of you, there's something you're holding against another, and maybe that aspect of mercy is the toughest part of this. I mentioned this is probably the biggest part of what David had to do in letting God be God is to act in mercy toward a man who was not being merciful toward him. Many of you are familiar with Corey Tin Boom, the Holocaust survivor whose whole family was destroyed. They were Christians who hid Jews from the Nazis during the time of the Nazi reign in Germany. This is a picture of Corrie Tim Boom, beautiful color picture of her, her family uh, before the war. Uh, below that, she is the only woman standing, the second from the left. This is before her family was totally annihilated except for her. Uh, by the atrocities of the Nazis for hiding Jews. Uh, then I bring up the cover of a new book that just came out a couple of months ago that I'm reading. It's a, many of you have heard The Hiding Place, which is a great book, and it 
it is from Cory Ten Boom's own words about that part of her life during the Nazi occupation, what God did through that. But this book is a biography of her life, her whole life. She lived well into her late 80s, and, and um, this book is just a real blessing. It's not available yet in our bookstore, but I think you can get it other places or order it from our bookstore. But Corey Tim Boom came to a place where she had to let God be God in a situation. She had to take the next right step, and it involved mercy and forgiveness. And she wrote about it in November 1972 in the Guidepost magazine. I want to read this from her own words about this incident where she had to take the next right step and show mercy to someone it was hard to show mercy to. This is in her own words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite biblical and mental picture of forgiveness. Maybe because the sea is never far from Holland's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown by God. When we confess our sins, I said to the group, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Corey Tin Boom continues, the solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe this kind of forgiveness. There were never questions after a talk on forgiveness in post-war Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their things, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It became, or it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could still see my sister's frail frame ahead of me Ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me. He had his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good is it to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness in this little session, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he continued to say. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for those cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. 
Will you forgive me, Fraulein? And I stood there, Corey says. I, whose sins had every day needed to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who've injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a command of God, but a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for the victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able, also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained paralyzed invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. Jesus, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart, I forgive you, brother. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then in that moment. That was the next right step for her in that moment. Many of us would blame her, wouldn't blame her if she just walked away, never even taking the man's hand or expressing forgiveness. Maybe for you, the next right step has to do with mercy, being kind to someone who's been cruel to you, rude to you, harsh to you, Maybe the next right step for you has to do with mercy towards someone. Maybe the next right step is just going to the next place like David went from Engedi to Matsada. Whatever the next right step is, take it today. God is a much better God than you are. Let God be God. That's not passively giving up and drifting through life. That's actively leaning in and engaging God and trusting in him. Spend time daily with God. Be kind to others no matter what. And take the next right step. Trust God with it. Would you bow your heads? If the Lord has been working on you and that you're struggling with knowing what that next right step is or taking that next right step, and you'd like me to pray for you as I close, would you just slip your hand up? Just slip it straight up real quick if you'd like me to pray for you in that. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the honesty. Thank you. Thank you for just the openness and transparency and number of hands in the room. Let me pray. 
Father, I pray for these who've just lifted their hand quickly. Maybe there are more in the room who are wrestling right now with what the next right step is. I'm sure, Father, I'm not the only type A in the room who likes to control all the circumstances and conversations and relationships. And yet we can't. We're not God. May we learn to let you be God. May we be clear about our reality, patient in our journey, wise in our choices, Lord, merciful in our responses, and faithful in our walk. We pray for those who are struggling with what that next right step is or taking it. May they spend time daily with you this week. May they be kind to people no matter what. And may they then take the step they know to take and trust you in it, that you'll provide for them for the next right step and the next right step. Father, may your glory shine through us as we let you be God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.